caregiver sathi brings to you conversations with gentle warriors a series of our live facebook sessions where caregivers share their caregiving journeys now in a podcast format to catch them live follow our youtube and facebook pages A very good morning, and I am absolutely delighted that we are having a very significant conversation today on the uh, Caregiver Sathi platform. The conversation today is about what today's day signifies. Today's day is uh, a day devoted to the awareness around autism and understanding autism. um i have to say that personally i got to know autism when i was a much adult and i don't think i grew up with adequate information and knowledge and perhaps my information and knowledge about autism today is significantly wanting uh, i know it only from a distance and perhaps i'm afraid that i don't know enough So, given today is the day for awareness around autism, we have a very special guest with us, Gopika Kapoor, who has uh, not just uh, had life experience with autism; she's been a parent to a child with autism and has done extensive work in the area. And uh, we are grateful to her for sharing her uh, knowledge and wisdom with us. and helping us understand what autism is and how we can be compassionate caregivers whether as friends family colleagues parents um and we will be speaking specifically about the theme this year the theme this year for autism awareness is inclusivity at workplaces so this is at a very beautiful intersection for uh, for all the work that i do around uh, organizations and leadership development and bringing diversity to the workplace so um, welcome gopika thank you so much bhavna it's such an honor to be here especially today uh, which is a day which does mark autism awareness and i really think that um, we need to start moving towards autism acceptance rather than just awareness uh you know as times move on because i think that's really what what is needed um to kind of bring about this culture of inclusivity that you were talking about so i just wanted to add uh, bhavna that i am also the author of a book called beyond the blue which is the first book by an indian parent on autism uh this is a book which chronicles my journey with my son who is now 16 years old right from the time that he was a baby and it also includes a uh, professional knowledge strategies tips lived experience for parents since i have worked as a therapist for 10 years and it's available on amazon and flipkart because the hindi translation should be out this year so i would encourage all parents to read it to kind of learn more about autism and to really know how to work with and uh, how to ensure participation of individuals with autism in society because like like you said um, in the workplace in the community in society 
Yeah, minor technical glitch, but we are back. Yes. So, yes. So, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak about this. Because I think it's really an important place and an important day to talk about. No, it's fantastic. Actually, I think that the fact that uh, not only have you um, navigated your journey with a sense of, um, you know, how, how much ever um, unknown and difficult terrain it was, you've navigated that journey, but be able to also look back upon it um, and be able to create a resource for so many others who might be in the same uh, space and struggling similarly or... Um, trying to make meaning, uh, I think it's, it's, it, it's an incredible act of uh, going beyond yourself. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you for that. It was actually, it was really cathartic uh, to write about my, my whole journey, you know, when I reflected on it. I think it increased my uh, acceptance and my love for my son. And uh, I really, you know, when I was, when, when my son uh, was first diagnosed, the first thing, uh, I, I am a writer and a reader. And so the first thing I did was look for books. And every single book that I read was from a Western perspective. Nothing talked about the Indian perspective, you know. So I'll give you a small example. You know, there is this thing called the gluten-free, kiss-free diet, which a lot of parents experiment with, especially in the earlier year, early years. Because at that time, you're looking for anything to kind of fix your child, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, nobody talked about that in the context of, of India, where... The staple meal of everybody is a roti. How yeah. do you expect people, and you live in a family, which is not just, very, most people don't live in nuclear families. Um, they live in joint families. I remember uh, my in-laws were so sweet because they would uh, kind of, you know, they adjusted their meal time so that they could eat their rotis without my son having to do that. These are things that, that are so small but so significant. And none of the Western books talked about that. And so I really felt that this book was a long time coming. Um, yeah. It took me a long time to get up the courage to write it. But I'm glad I did. I'm really, really glad. We are glad and we are grateful that you did what you did. And I would like for you, if it is okay with you, to tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, of course, we will we will get a copy sure. of your book. But you know, what is it that you would tell us about your journey so that we can get a glimpse into that? Sure. So actually, uh, I have quit. So my journey started right from the time that my children were a few months old. Uh, my son's name is Dave. My daughter's name is Dietri, and they are probably my life's biggest achievements. They are sixteen years old now and are two bright, energetic. Uh, lovely young people, if I may say so, that myself, their mother. Um, it started when people started noticing differences between Veer and Gayatri. And initial kind of reaction. I think, uh, you know, yes. I, 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 am, I, am, I, I am very amused by the technical challenges we are having today. No, I know, I know. I have a hypothesis about it which I will talk about once you finish. So please go on. Okay. Okay. And so, like I said, uh, Tari Zabinkar had come out. There were lots of articles being written. And so I figured that I need to, you know, see what 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 is up with him. And so we took him to a developmental pediatrician. And that is where he was diagnosed with autism. The initial few months and maybe a 
years were a complete blur because we were running from one therapy to the other in, like I said, an effort to fix him. Uh, I think this is the path which most parents take. Yeah. Till they reach a point where they realize that there's really nothing to fix. That, of course, you must teach your child. Of course, they can learn. But we don't have to fix them. Yeah. Uh, and, if, and for me, arriving at this conclusion took a while. Um, but uh, in the course, I realized how privileged I was. I was able to access care. I had the money to pay for it. I didn't have to sacrifice something to be able to afford therapy. And so in order to give back, I joined Umi Child Development Center, which is where Veer was diagnosed. Uh, this is in Mumbai. And um, I joined there uh, to, to work in fundraising, but I very quickly realized that I wanted to become a therapist. And so I requested Dr. Vipa Krishnamurti, who runs Umi, whether I could become a therapist. And to her full credit, she agreed. And so I started training at home. Um, and over the course of 10 years, worked with 400 to 500 families, uh, wow. children, uh, did a lot of trainings all over the country. And I learned so, so much uh, mm. about autism, about the different ways in which the brain is wired, about the way um, you know, children function and what makes them function, about how they learn. And I also learned about the families of uh, the people who would come to me would be primarily mothers because, you know, somehow what tends to happen is that when a child is diagnosed on the spectrum, the mother, in most cases, the mother takes on the, uh, the job of bringing the child to therapy, of doing therapy at home with the child, of looking after the child. Yeah. We also had to work with a lot of mothers who had... Um, you know, who had mental health concerns themselves because a lot of them were depressed because of the way their children were uh, after the diagnosis uh, uh, about how to cope, what to do. They were facing societal pressures. Uh, so many, so many women would come to me saying, you know, my in-laws blame me for the way my child. And that was a very, very common concern that we heard about. Or my husband doesn't want to have anything to do with um, this child because he says it's my fault. So again, working with that, so it was such an incredible learning experience. And I have tried to take 10 years of experiences, learning, um, you know, all sorts of emotions that I felt and put them in some 260 pages and write about it. So it's, it's really been quite, quite a journey. I can, I, I can only imagine. And some of the thoughts just came to me. Uh, for example, uh, someone I know who is very, very dear to me um, discovered um, her child on the spectrum, didn't want right. to talk about it. And, uh, you know, one, one knew, but one didn't know how to offer support. And uh, how to convey that, listen, I don't think about it like most other people do. Um, right, right. And um, I know that, you know, she felt that she was somehow responsible for it. You know, maybe she hadn't looked after herself well enough during pregnancy and that led to, so somehow she caused it. And, um, and there's a sense of helplessness of the people around 
because we just don't know enough right yeah. and i think your book is not just for parents i think it is more for society at large because we all need this we all need this education so um, you know i am so glad thank I you so much for saying that. that thank you so much for saying that you know because i've um, i've 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 kind of had reactions to the book uh, not only from parents of kids on the spectrum but uh, from people who are not parents at all and uh, who have told me that um, it is it is a book that teaches you about resilience and just how to face any adversity or any kind of trying so um yeah so i think it's it's just about about you know just how to deal with any kind of adversity and for people who um you're absolutely right because we have if you look at the statistics we have 3 million people approximately yeah. uh who are on the spectrum and um you know they they need to be like we talked about initially they need to be a part of society and community and that will only happen when the people around them kind of change and figure out how they can be with them like this sochcast tune in for more with the sochcast app from the google play store yeah and you know that leads me to the other conversation that we were having earlier which is you know this whole tag of special child and special yes. whatever um i i mean i get goose flesh and i'm a little moved by what you said so you know this can you tell us about what it meant to be the parent of a special child and what has been your response so that people can build a little sensitivity about it i hated it i hated being the special needs mom in the group i remember this one time and i have written about this um in uh, my book where uh, we had a shadow teacher and this was when he was in the first grade and there was this coffee morning with these moms and uh they all were saying you know there's this new teacher she's a shadow teacher for somebody i wonder who it's for and i remember sitting over there and my heart was beating so fast and i said should i say shouldn't i say should i say shouldn't i say yeah. and i said i don't know you know i just pretended i knew nothing at all and um it was i think it was the one one point in my life when i look back and i just feel that it was one among the lowest points in my life when i felt so low um because it i just did not have that strength then to accept you know the whole when people talk about acceptance as one of those five stages of grief it takes time it takes a lot of time um and so uh, it it's something which took me a lot of time to accept that i am the parent of a child with special needs and um that this is something which is going to be with me for my life you know it's going to be a tag which is going to be with me in my life uh the beauty about acceptance is that um over time it 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 becomes it becomes almost like a like a cloak that you wear on you you don't want to take it off and now it's a matter of pride for me it becomes part of my skin it's become really really become part of my skin 
Uh, it's something which I'm very proud of. It's something which I talk about. It's something which I kind of, you know, proclaim from the rooftops of the world. But it takes time to, to build that. And I think a large part of that is the people you have who surround you. Uh, if you're constantly, like I talked about a lot of the, the women I worked with where there was no family support, there was no community support, it was very difficult. But if you do have that kind of support um, and you have people around you to give you the strength to rise up, it really you know, I'm reminded uh, there, there, there's one particular story, uh, uh, some of the interactions that we have um, and, and some of the work that we do with, in Caregiver Sati is about working with family caregivers who, uh, who have to deal with incurable conditions, right? So the healthcare system is designed for treatments and for, you know, addressing acute illness and, you know, curing it. So our orientation is, let's go fix it, let's go cure it. Um, and um, I, I remember meeting this young mother and I can't get over her because she, she would say stuff like, she said uh, in that meeting that, um, you know, I get angry with my child and sometimes I'm so tired and frustrated that I want to slap him. Am I a good mother? And my heart comes to my throat every time I say this. I've been there. I've just been there. Absolutely. You know, uh, and uh, I did want to tell her, and I want, I, I want you to help us reach out to all those mothers and, you know, tell us, what is it that you would tell them? I would say, of course, you're going to be in that position all the time. You know, uh, there are times when I've even given him a spank on his bottom because <laughs> I've just been so frustrated. And of course, all the books will tell you, you know, take a deep, calm, take a, take a deep breath, stay, chant a mantra, do whatever it takes. Anger is very, very good. And it takes time because you're not, you're not just, you're not angry at the child. Yes, the child is probably 5% of it, you know, and they may have done something which has caused that. Um, you're angry at life, at circumstances. I remember listening to this TED Talk once, which said that the time that anger, the feeling of anger originates and enters your brain and leaves, the, the whole physiological reaction leaves your body is nine seconds. Why do we hold on to anger? But we, I mean, sometimes we hold on to it for years, right? But it is not just that incident which has caused the anger. It's anger at life. Why did I become like this? Anger at the universe or God or whatever you want to believe in fate. You know, why did I get this child? Uh, it's anger at people around who are maybe not supportive or people who don't understand or, or even at, at other people. Like, why do other people have to have perfect children and why do I have to have this child? Not that you don't love your child, but it's the unfairness of society, unfairness of life. It's, it's everything, you know? And sometimes it just becomes too much. And that is why for, for parents, initially, of course, it's very difficult because all you're seeing is that that's the only thing you're seeing. And I know because I've been there, you're like on a, you're on a treadmill. You want to fix things. You want to go from one therapy to the other. You're trying out diets. You go to faith healers. I went to faith healers. Um, you know, you're doing everything possible. And you are exhausted, so tired. You just cannot think. Um, and what happens is that in this whole 
circus that you're surrounded by, you don't take time out for yourself. And when you are in that situation, you're not taking time out for yourself, you're not looking after yourself, then because of the exhaustion, because of the frustration, because you see, see things don't change overnight. Because yeah. even when you're teaching your child with autism, they take time to learn. They will learn. They all learn. Okay? But it takes time. And you've not developed that, that patience yet um, to kind of accept. You've not, when I say who, I mean most parents, I would say. There are some amazing parents who have just, I know who from the get-go, they've been amazing, inspirational moms. But most parents are not like that. And so what happens is the anger comes out. And who does it come out on? The person who's right in front of you, 24-7, who is this child? And so, of course, the only thing I would say is, please remember to take time out for yourself and do not feel guilty about it. You know, guilt is such a huge accompanying uh, kind of factor, which I think anyway, even mothers of uh, neurotypical children experience it. You know, anytime they take out from their child, they say, oh God, I can't do this for myself. I should be with my child. It's this whole societal conditioning we have about mothers and guilt. But especially if you have a child with any sort of special needs or autism, it's just like a albatross which is sitting on your back. You know, it's much more and it just, you have to shrug it off and you have to take that time out because it makes a world of difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. You know, there's so many things that you said. For example, I love the description of anger because it, I think it is so true. You are actually, uh, first of all, anger is a very legitimate feeling. <laughs> I live okay. with it for so many things. So I'm going to legitimize it whether or not anyone else does. <laughs> and, um, I, and I think, sometimes we can't discern what we are angry about and um, and uh, but we hold on to it for a variety of reasons we feel um, yeah. I think it's somewhere your craving for love and attention and understanding um, that manifests in anger um, I also heard you speak about uh, guilt and definitely shame uh, and I think I've heard it in different forms. For example, a parent saying, yeah, you know, my child has been uh, detected on the spectrum, but you know, it's a spectrum. So, you know, he's on the lower. <laughs> oh God, that's another place I've been at. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there are, uh, I, I, and something that, uh, you know, one of my, another dear person uh, in my life says that, you know, there are some uh, illnesses and some conditions that are, can be detected and that are evident. There are many that cannot be detected and are not evident. Yes. The idea Absolutely. of normal is a myth. So true. Very right? true. And so that's why autism is considered an invisible condition. It is because you look at a child, you're not going to say this child is on the spectrum or is autistic. Um, Unless they have, say, cerebral palsy and they're in a wheelchair or they have uh, yeah. difficulties with walking or whatever it is. But right. um, otherwise, you're not going to be able to detect it at all. Right, right. 
uh, and, and you know, like when somebody says something like this, it, it's a little bit of a mix of a response. Like, you know, you want to step back and you want to say, you know what, I don't want to overstep here. I know what you're trying yeah. to say. I want to be sensitive to what you're trying to say. What you really want to say is that your child is okay. And, you know, and, and I respect that. But sometimes um, I think we don't have the language to be able to do it. Um, I would... I would like for us to veer towards uh, the theme of uh, autism awareness and the fact that uh, this year the emphasis is on uh, autism at workplaces. Yeah. And uh, what does it mean to have adults who have autism and that they be included in workplaces? So what are your first thoughts on that? I think... Honestly, that uh, people with autism are a huge untapped source of uh, employment. Uh, there are a lot of kind of characteristics that they have, which are typically viewed as challenges, but actually, when you look at them, are strengths when it comes to the workplace. So, for example, the first thing that anyone will tell you uh, about a person with autism is that they are not uh, very social, they find social difficult. And so, yes, with this overwhelming stress, you know, on social skills and being a team player, uh, you know, in a workspace, they will not fit into that. But is that necessary to do every job? Yes, maybe for sales and marketing, you need to be social and to be able to, to have the gift of the gap. But if you work in an IT firm, or if you work in an accounting firm, you don't need to be very social. You don't need to have exceptional social skills. So again, you look at it as, take the challenge and look at it as a strength. For example, yes, they may not be very social, but on the other hand, they're not going to waste time in like mindless chatter. They're not going to sit and scheme and talk about office politics and you know make all these strange plans to um, kind of set somebody up for failure. They're going to come in, they're going to focus on their work, and they're going to do it. They're going to get the job done because their ability to focus is incredible. The other thing is their, uh, their tremendous kind of uh, persistence. If a job has to be done, it will get done. It will just get done, you know? So that, they're very, very honest. They do not uh, like transition. And that is something which we work on with, with children as well, you know, where moving from one place to the other is difficult for them. Leaving one thing and moving to the other is difficult. But when you look at it in the workplace, you have a very loyal employee who is not going to change jobs every year just for the sake of better growth prospects or for, for you know, uh, 10,000 rupees more of a salary. So you have all these things, these kind of conditions or factors which we typically look at as challenges. But if there is a shift in perspective, and if employers think about it, these really can prove to be absolute pluses when it comes to the workplace. As regards what they will have to do to make the workplace more autism friendly, yes, of course, there have to be accommodations. There have to be things which they have to change around. But they are very minor when you compare it to the larger um, you know, kind of scenario. They've, most companies who have worked 
with employees on the spectrum, I found that not only has it impacted the employees, it also impacted the finance uh, finances of the company. So it's not you know you know when a company hires a person on the spectrum, they're not doing charity. They're after all a business. They need to make a profit. Uh, there was a very interesting article in the Guardian in February this year, where they worked they reported on uh, autism in the workplace in India. And they reported that there were neurodiverse which actually saved a company some 73,000 pounds. Wow. And, and a job which was supposed to take five weeks took three days. Mm. So, so again, those kind of things are very, very positive indicators. But I think what is important is that the workplace culture needs to change. The top I find it absolutely fascinating that we are having these technical glitches today. Yeah, lots of technical glitches. <laughs> but you know, here's my, I, I think it's important I speak about my hypothesis. Yes, yes. Please do tell. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. I think a challenging topic like this is going to be difficult to, end, to, 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 to navigate, okay? And it is going to be different from the smooth operations we are used to. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, organizations and workplaces have been designed at a time for a set of people with certain efficiencies and certain slickness in mind, okay? And now we are trying to change that. We are trying to say, listen, we need to look at workplaces differently. And if we bring in you know, people with different strengths, there is going to be a little bit of a glitch along the way, but it will smoothen out in the long run. I love that. So I'm going to tell you my take. My yes. take is that uh, whether it is a student or a young child who I, I used to work with, um, you know, to teach them certain tasks, or an employee, they all need breaks from time to time from the task. So what we are doing is we're giving breaks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's as simple as that. That is true. That is yeah, definitely just true. Just to self-regulate ourselves, to have a sip of water and come back and to focus our thoughts. So that's what it is. <laughs> I know. Um, and I was just thinking that, you know, so organizations and workplaces have existed in a certain way, right? So when earlier uh, workplaces used to be factories and plants and things yeah. like that, and then we moved to, uh, you know, office spaces that were slightly different, and now we are working from home. Um, I, I suppose every place requires a different infrastructure. So if we were building an office in a very earthquake own area, we would provide for something different there. Uh, I remember very vividly in one of the organizations where I was working, two incidents. One, there was a young mother who came and said, you know, you people in the HR department, I, um, uh, I, need, a, I need a feeding room uh, because I need to breast pump uh, and I need time. Uh, so we didn't have a space in our office, a very progressive organization. We literally converted a, um, a team room into a breast pump space because she was the first woman who asked for that facility. But then it just became a norm. So sometimes taking the first step is hard. Yes. And yes. 
you know, this was an IT firm. We had uh, one person that we hired who had severe polio. And um, despite being a sensitive organization, we didn't have a ramp. So the entrance to the uh, office had steps and uh, we needed to construct a ramp. But I am so grateful to that organization and uh, you know the leader of the HR team who I absolutely love, uh, Karthik, who said, you know, this has to be done, this has to be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we took the- I initiative. think sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I think the first step is to just make that commitment that you will hire somebody who's yeah. on the spectrum. I think the what and the hows and the everything else just kind of falls into place. But once you have decided, I think it is just a question of that decision and the commitment that, look, we will do whatever it takes to support this person. And yeah. actually, Bhavna, it doesn't take that much. You know, there are simple things. Like, for example, if your company has a policy of floating desks, okay, where you come in and every day you change your desks and, you know, yeah. All you have to do is designate one desk for this one person because they will not be able to deal with the concept of yeah. a float. If you have tube lights, which, you know, typical government office tube lights, which flicker, now that is difficult for a lot of people on the spectrum. They have visual, you know, issues. All you can do is either tell them if you cannot change the tube lights, you tell them you can wear sunglasses or reflective glasses, or else just change the tube lights and switch them to LEDs, which don't flicker as much, or sit them in a place which is uh, seat them in a place which is closer to natural light. One company found that their productivity, it is, I, I know it's such a small thing, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. The productivity of the employees changed when they changed their floor cleaner. Mm, okay? Smell. Because it was a very strong smell. And when they used a more neutral smell, it was less distracting for their neurodiversity were then able to focus better and then productivity and efficiency went up. So it is just actually the small things, you know, and I think HR policies doesn't necessarily have to have things like, um, you know, I mean, when when we talk about equality and we talk about inclusivity and diversity, it is just taking into account these small things and saying, okay, what can I do to make your workday a little bit better than it already is? and make you more comfortable in the space that you work. Absolutely. I think uh, the point is also that I may have understood that workplaces are best like this, right? So I have a definition of what is a good workplace and a definition of what is efficiency. And perhaps now that needs to change. Perhaps now I need to be able to say, okay, this needs to be challenged. This needs to be looked at differently. And um, maybe we need to understand this better. Maybe I just don't understand uh, this new set of people and their new set of needs. So can I have a dialogue? How do I set up a dialogue with experts like yourself who are able to come from their life experience and share their experience and help people understand and challenge some of their uh, you know old ideas 
and say, yeah. okay, the workplace of the future will be a little more inclusive and here are some ways in which we can do it. Right. Um, I, think, I think that's really important. I think that is the dialogue that companies, I mean, there are a few who are having this, this conversation and who have been open to, you know, hiring neurodiverse teams and employees, but I think it needs to become a norm rather than an exception. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think it is also very interestingly and very significantly linked with the other challenge. You know, recently this uh, report has been released about how few women are in the formal workplace um, and organizations. And I have a strong hunch that a large number of qualified women fall off the workforce because they have such caregiving responsibilities. So if we want to retain, not just you know, include people with autism, but uh, caregivers who are looking after people with autism, then workplaces have to be sensitive to also caregivers. Uh, Very true. Very true, yeah. And, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I want you to tell me, what is your experience? You mentioned that mostly it is mothers. So tell me if, what is your thought about this hypothesis? I, I came across a very interesting term uh, on this. Uh, the, the term is that women evaporate. They, they, if women evaporate from the higher uh, kind of rungs of uh, leadership and management. Uh, which is which is true because it's almost like they're they're kind of vanishing into thin air. Um, and uh, my, in my experience, working with families, when a child was newly diagnosed, uh, both the parents would take time off and come for therapy, and then after some time, the fathers might not come in so much, and the mothers would be taking time off, and they you know they kind of sometimes they say, "I'm so sorry, but this is a work email," and so they'd be answering emails. And after some time, you find that they were sitting over there without their phones out and uh, you'd say, you know what, I quit my job because it was just yeah. too much for me to handle. And this is something which fell on the women. Um, I think even traditionally, when it comes to just parenting children, of course, the, the, the role of the caregiver is And so if there is a question of giving up a job, it is just kind of assumed. It's not even, I wouldn't even say expected. It's just assumed. It's just assumed uh, yeah. that the woman, yeah, that the woman will give up her job. Um, and uh, this is something which, of course, is definitely the case when you have a special child. Uh, having said that, Bhavna, so we we had talked about this earlier, and there was something which was quite interesting, which I thought of, which is uh, flipping this whole thing on its head, um, which is that. The women who give up their jobs uh, in maybe the corporate space are the ones who then turn around. Because I think as a mother, you are your child's biggest advocate. You have to, whether you want to be or not. You know, this, yeah. we talked about like assuming this mantle of being the special mom or the special needs parent. Uh, this is something which doesn't, it's, it's not something that you take on, it's thrust upon you. Correct. And uh, like greatness, what you do with it is dependent on you. Yes. So 
I have seen that in the case of most organizations um, working with children on the spectrum, whether it is therapists, uh, even if I were to look at my own example, I didn't come from the corporate space, but I came from the journalism space. And it is, I never in a million years thought that I would, my whole life would be turned around to become somebody who works with children with autism and then now has assumed this entire role of advocacy, of getting into diversity and inclusion um, kind of training and working with companies to make sure that people uh, on the spectrum are hired. And so it, it almost gives a lot of women a new upstart. Yeah. The organizations which yeah. um, work with uh, children with autism. So whether it is Action for Autism, which is in Delhi, which is a fabulous organization headed yeah. by Mary Barua. Mary is somebody who just, uh, her son is on the spectrum and she is unbelievably inspiring. She's such an amazing woman. Um, there is Jo Chopra who heads uh, Latika Bihar Foundation. Yeah. There are those. These are women who just took on this, this uh, role and just you know, it, it was almost like they shared their previous skin and took this on with such amazing grace and beauty and compassion and so much passion and drive that they've made it into something quite, quite beautiful. Um, so, yes, I, I do see that, that a lot of women, but everybody is not a Mary Barwan, everybody is not a Joshua. You know, I think that they, uh, you know, so, so, um, there is that that does happen to some women, but you're absolutely right. For most of the women who are the mothers of children with special needs, with autism, they do tend to evaporate from the higher levels of management in the corporate world. And I strongly feel that, you know, um, the pandemic has taught us that uh, things are dynamic and things are uncertain and things are changing and that we need leaders who are compassionate, uh, leaders who can think out of the box, and leaders who can engage with challenges that have hitherto not been um, faced. All of that requires a certain dexterity, a certain ability to work with the unknown. And I think that um, mothers of children with diverse needs can actually fill that gap much more beautifully than the conventional leaders uh, or what we think makes a leader. Um, so uh, I, am, um, I am hoping that all those who listen to this conversation and are in charge of organizations will be able to see the potential and power of not just people with autism, but their caregivers, both men and women. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, and certainly um, mothers, because I think they come with a very different resilience and wisdom. Oh yes, absolutely. That's true. Very and perhaps organizations will need to invest in sensitivity and awareness so that colleagues can uh, understand and cope and be, uh, be, be able to create the right environment. Um, any 
last words uh, for us so that because you know this conversation can go on and on i i have a feeling that you and i <laughs> yes absolutely i know it's i it's been uh, despite or because of the technical glitches it's been a real pleasure uh, thank you so much for having me i would just say that i think we need to really as individuals as leaders as a society uh, the world is becoming more and more polarized i think we need to stop looking at people with autism or any sort of special need or any sort of difference as these echara people like we look at them you know the <clears throat> yeah so varna uh, like i was saying that uh, again you know the, the fact that that people with uh, autism have been referred to as divya jan uh, you know children of god who need very special care yes of course they do but so do all children and so do yeah. all individuals we all need special care right we all need to feel we need to feel special um the fact of the matter is that in doing that what we do is we tend to protect them and i'm not just talking about parents but as a society we feel that this child needs my protection for the rest yeah. of my life yeah uh, and actually what we're doing is we're doing them a disservice because when we protect we don't challenge and we don't let them live out to their potential every single child with autism is capable of learning and every single child with autism is capable of contributing to society and i think we need to stop looking at them as becharas and as um you know we stop we need to stop looking at them as uh, people who cannot do anything and who cannot contribute because they can all contribute and we just need to figure out if they they are not the issue they, there's nothing wrong with them we have the ones who need to change our lenses and look at them differently so the problem lies with us there's nothing wrong with them at all and i'm hoping that conversations like this will help in a very small way but taking a step forward uh, to change mindsets and change that absolutely no i think so beautifully said i think uh, there are some fixed ideas what is normal what is okay what is acceptable and all of that deserves to be challenged and yes. uh, we definitely need to change our lens and absolutely. um i i absolutely am inspired and love the work that you do the courage and thank the you. grace that you have thank you for doing what you do and who you are uh, thank you thank you so much it has been such a pleasure i have not realized where the time has gone and i yes neither have i <laughs> and i have a feeling that we can have many such dialogue spaces and conversations and look at how we can shift the needle on this one i look forward to that and i look forward uh, to collaborate with you as well so yes looking forward to that and hopefully this conversation is thank you you have a lovely day for whatever is left and a great weekend you too take care bye thank you take care thank you bye bye
If you can identify with this story, please share it with others who care for someone and help them share too. The feeling of being understood, not being alone, and access to support is what keeps caregivers going. What part of this story connected with you? Do you have a story to share? Do let us know.